الجزيرة بودكاست Another cop, another failure to save the planet. The 27th edition of the UN Conferences of Parties ended with no agreement to curb emissions, but a deal was agreed on a climate damage and loss fund. Is that enough? And do these conferences serve any purpose? I'm Mohamed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests from Brussels, Chiara Martinelli, Climate Action Network Europe Director. From Nairobi, Abdi Ainte, a former Minister of Planning in Somalia and a former senior UN official. And from Kiel in the UK, Sharon George, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Sustainability and Green Technology at Kiel University. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Abdi, let me start with you today. Just how significant is it that this loss and damage fund was set up uh, during COP27. Um, and and do you think that it actually will help developing nations cope with climate change going forward? There is no question that uh, the setup of this fund is a tremendous progress when you look at the totality of the efforts that have been made um, over the last many years uh, in relations to the climate crisis. But we need to remember that this is only a fund. There is no money in it uh, uh, just for now and probably not for another year or so while the committee works on the detail. That's number one. But more importantly, I think um, uh, the fund, when and if it goes on and operational, it is supposed to help developing countries to to mitigate uh, the climate crisis, flooding, um, droughts, a famine in this part of the world, in the Horn of Africa. It's supposed to do that in theory, but a lot of the the details are are not there yet. So we'll have to wait until the committee um, actually finishes its work in about a year time. Abdi, let me just follow up, because the fact of the matter is, as you said, um, there is no money in this fund yet. Essentially, this is a bucket that was set up, and the bucket is still empty. And there have been other times uh, in the last 10 years or so when funds were set up. I believe there was an adaptation fund where uh, poorer nations, developing countries, were supposed to get $100 billion a year, and and I don't believe they're getting anywhere near that, uh, if anything at all. I I mean, is there any sense of, of when these funds might start being available? available to the countries? Well, it's very difficult to imagine that this fund will receive the amount of money that it was supposed to be receiving, considering the fact that a lot of these countries, the the big emitters, uh, for example, the United States and other big countries are democracies, and their power uh, of the purse rests with Congress, for example, in the U.S. We know the Biden administration will face a divided Congress for the next two years. So with the Republicans in charge of the lower house of the Congress, you know, I can't foresee them approving money for United Nations um, fund, and they've already criticized it. Same can be said about other Western democracies. So I think, you know, it's always expected out of these international conferences to lay out very lofty goals and ultimately fall significantly shorter on them. And, and I think, unfortunately, this Sounds like, you know, the same, although I don't want to preclude the possibility of actually it being worked uh, out uh, quite meticulously. Uh, Sharon, I saw you reacting to some of what Abdi was saying there, so I'm going to let you jump in. But but I also want to ask you, from your perspective, was enough accomplished at COP27? Nowhere near enough, not, not in terms of what we're seeing with climate change now. You know, you can liken this to 
you know, a, a flooding tap, flooding the floor, and all this is doing is is kind of mopping up the damage that's been caused. Um, it's not really putting enough investment into what's going to happen. And what we're seeing is this, this um, kind of evolving situation, climate change becoming worse. And it will become worse with the emissions that are already there. And not enough emphasis has been there in terms of planning for the future. We're just kind of mitigating against what has happened and just kind of investing in keeping the infrastructure there to keep carrying on doing what we're doing and, and it's almost like a business as usual case and I think a lot more urgency needs to be done right now especially to affect those um, those countries that are you know they're going to lose all, all um, you know ability to live where they live you know it's it's um, it's a it, it, there's a real urgency for more funding right now for, for people that are affected right now. Kiara, if I could get your thoughts on, on COP27, from your perspective, uh, what were some of its successes and what were some of its failures? Yes, I think one of, I mean, the major success, and I think we do need to celebrate, is the agreement of all countries to finally answer to poor countries' requests to create a fund on loss and damage. And I think this is important to recognize, even if, as we have been saying, like there are, uh, there is a lot of work to be done in terms of to, to make it operational. But I think it's really important politically that all countries agreed in Africa to deliver on loss and damage finance. And I think this needs to be to be to be highlighted. Of course, uh, uh, we are worried about the follow-up work, and we will keep our pressure pressure to make sure that this fund get all the procedural procedural details that are needed to make that is operational as of the COP next year. Um, I think it's also important to say that, uh, of course, we do, as a civil society from all over the world, we do recognize this also as an important success of all the mobilization that civil society have been, uh, have been doing around the loss and damage financial facility throughout the whole year. Um, overall, I do agree also that uh, uh, this COP27 again failed on delivering enough ambition and, in, and, and delivering enough uh, concrete steps forward to address the climate crisis that, uh, that we are facing today. And I think this is again is a missed opportunity. We do need these summits not only to confirm commitments, but actually to raise the buy higher and higher in terms of targets and in terms of financial engagement and commitment across the whole globe. Sharon, I, I saw you nodding along. I want to give you an opportunity to uh, to add to the point she was making, if you'd like. Yeah, because it's not just you know it's not just about um, that that kind of just that funding that um, that that kind of emergency response funding. It is about putting that investment there for for futures and making that equitable and making that fair and, and accessible. And that's going to be a challenge to do it at the speed that we need to do. And in the, me in the meantime, you know, we've got biodiversity and free fall at the moment. We're losing species. We're losing cl climate change has a bigger impact than just economic. And at the moment, we, we're still investing around the world in fossil fuels. And it, this this can't be right. You know, we're, we're talking about billions of pounds in aid to help combat climate change that we're also spending, you know, money on. 
combat it is sort of working the other way with fossil fuels and that we need to really take this serious at COP and COP has a real um, leadership role to take us forward in, in this respect and I think we, we're just not quite there and, and we need that that focus and that one voice globally if we're going to make if we're going to take this seriously. Uh, Abdi, you know, we were speaking earlier uh, about the fact that there's still a, a lot of decisions to be made, even when it comes to setting up this loss and, and damage fund. And, and it seems as though um, the negotiators, those that were present at COP27, have essentially kicked the can down the road and said that things will most likely be decided next year before COP28, at least some of the more difficult decisions. I want to ask you, what are some of the more difficult decisions? I'm asking that because... Clearly, it was very difficult even getting to this point. So what beyond this point is even more difficult that it couldn't be agreed to this year? Well, a number of things. So uh, first of all, um, the, the amount of money that needs to go into the fund um, needs to be determined. And where would it come from? I mean, we know that the 20 largest economies around the world are responsible for about roughly 80% of greenhouse ga gas emissions. And so, um, and we also know this is a, a very unique um, situation. China, which is currently probably the largest emitter of green, greenhouse gas emissions, is in fact considered and classified by the UN as a developing country, not as a developed country. And so, um, when you are classified like that, but you are a large uh, emitter of greenhouse gases, you know, how much are you going to contribute? Those are some of the details that need to be worked out. But also, you know, um, loss and damage also entails inherently um, liability. And some of the big countries like the U.S. are avoiding to be um, in a situation where they're trapped in some sort of a legal liability, perpetual legal liability for greenhouse gas emissions. So it is going to be quite complex uh, before we arrive at a, at a sensible fund. And, and, and even then, I think it'll be um, uh, much less than what uh, people have in mind today. Uh, Kiara, Sharon was talking about uh, what's really needed right now from her perspective is for the world to speak with one voice when it comes to action that, that really needs to be taken to combat uh, climate change going forward. That being said, uh, you know, COP27, there was a lot riding on that. Uh, and yet still you see that there were a lot of divisions uh, among the participating nations. So have COP gatherings actually served much of a purpose uh, over the years? I mean, they ha have they been able to accomplish much since they started holding them decades ago? No, I mean, I think uh, that's not enough. That it's the answer. But uh, uh, we also need to highlight that and point out that we don't have an alternative. So what we have today is this space as the only space where all countries, poor and rich countries, big and big polluters and the ones most impacted by climate change can be around one table and take decisions uh, to move forward. So I think not enough is my short answer, but at the same time, this is a space we should protect and we should strengthen actually to make sure that climate action is faster and really um, answering to the urgency we see. I think that the way we need to do that is to exactly what we were saying also in Sharm El Sheikh, to make sure that this space leads to decisions 
uh, across the three main pillars of the Paris Agreement, adaptation, mitigation, and loss and damage, and not putting one or the other pillar in competition uh, towards one another. Also, I think the most important thing to make these COPs in the future uh, still uh, relevant and impactful is to protect that space from the fossil fuels interests, uh, meaning like ensuring that uh, the space rem remain democratic, remain um, led by governments and by uh, delegates, and also ensuring that civil society has a voice in terms of making sure that the, 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 the experience, the expertise, but also the struggles of communities on the ground are part of the conversation in order to influence the, the decisions that we want to, to see um, coming out of these COPs. Sharon, how long have um, have poorer countries and developing countries been been seeking this kind of help from from richer countries? And and how big a win? You know, we can talk more about whether or not this money is actually put aside. But just the fact that they got to this point, how how big a win is that uh, for the poorer countries uh, and and for the developing countries that they even got this? Well, in, in one sense, there's been a kind of admission that this needs to happen, an agreement. That's a massive achievement. But looking back, you know, in, in indirect ways, climate change has been starting to have an impact quite slowly. And, and But also not just climate change, actually um, the impact of, of energy exploitation and energy, the energy market has you know, it has had an impact internationally on some nations more than others. And we've got complex issues around things like, you know, um, deforestation, loss of the Amazon, and, and, and massively um, complicated issues around our need for energy, coupled with economic complexi complexity around a, a country's you know, need to develop that income. So it, it's a complex picture. And and in, in that mix as well, you've got people with different social positions within that those economies. Um, so, you know, that that that's a very tricky question to answer. But I think what, what is needed, and I think one of the things that hasn't really been addressed in any of the COPs is anything like the accountability that we need. Like, where's the consequence if 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 nothing happens? then nothing happens and there is no consequence for that economy that, that's kind of kicking the can down the road. So I think, you know, what would have been nice to see is, is more accountability and consequence for those nations that don't, um, you know, pull their collective weight to, to address this problem. I think that is, is, you know, that's something I think needs to be embedded in future COPs to, to really have those specific targets. Mm. And Sharon, let me just ask, when it comes to um, the kind of pressure that activists uh, uh, and that NGOs were, were able to put on the participants in, in COP27, was that different this year than it has been in previous years? I think so. I think there's a real um, sense of urgency. And, and, and you know, the, 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 in terms of um, the sub public voice and the voice of those, those organisations that are, are doing the campaigning, I think there's a real frustration that's coming through of the lack of, of urgency and the lack of action. And, and I don't think that's unfounded. I think that voice is going to become louder um, and I think you know that's something 
weak, weak, you know, in, if people are not feeling listened to, then they protest and they campaign. And I think that's mm. something that we're going to see more of until you know, things start to really change. Kiara, I saw you reacting uh, quite a bit to what uh, Sharon was saying, so I, I wanted to see if you'd like to jump in. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, the the voice of civil society and activists was quite strong at this COP, uh, for, even with the little presence that we had uh, at the venue. But I think what is important to highlight is that is a voice that is getting stronger and stronger across the globe. So it's not only in one country or the other. So, and this I think would be extremely important to, uh, as a voice to be supported, especially in the run up to the next COP to make sure that also this uh, um, decision on the loss and damage fund is uh, quickly taken uh, uh, as a, um, with all the steps that are needed to make it that operational. And I also think that this is uh, uh, something we need to think through more as a civil society organization or now to link up all this pressure to the pressure that each and everyone is doing in his, in his own country. Because I think uh, the accountability, as uh, uh, Sharon said, is, is a key for, this, for the improvement of this process, but also monitoring and monitoring uh, decisions and monitoring what are the steps that have been uh, have been taken or the pledges that has been done. And let me uh, allow me to mention as an example that many European countries um, put forward some financial pledges for loss and damage in the first week of the COP. I think that that helped for sure to align around the decision on the on the loss and damage fund. But now we need to make sure that this finance, this financial commitment, is uh, additional and is well well channeled through the right procedures and the right schemes to make that operational. Abdi, one of the more unexpected things that happened while COP27 was going on was the announcement by the US and China that they were going to resume cooperating when it came to trying to combat uh, climate change and, and other issues. Um, from your perspective, did that give more momentum to what was going on at, at COP27? Did that help some of these processes along? Uh, there is no question about that. U.S. and China are the two largest economies, and by definition, they're also the two largest emitters of greenhouse gas emissions to this day. And so their cooperation is critical for the success of COP27 and this whole uh, sort of environmental process. But, Mohammed, I think we need to remind ourselves that the overarching objective of these international um, uh, you know, uh, dialogues around environment is to reach the 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius pre-industrial levels of, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the, um, the commitment to that objective uh, remains incredibly weak, even after decades of, of negotiations. A lot of countries are willing to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, as my colleague said, the monitoring uh, uh, of aspects of it uh, remains incredibly weak. And more importantly, a lot of Western countries are seeing the resurgence of far-right politicians who are actually also climate deniers. I mean, they don't even believe that we are sprinting into climate crisis, uh, be it in the U.S. or Western Europe and so on and so forth. And I suspect that, uh, unfortunately, that new reality will have an adverse impact on the negotiations in the coming years. Uh, especially if many uh, more far-right politicians come to power in, in Western democracies. Uh, Sharon, uh, Abdi was just talking there about the uh, goal of uh, keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Based on, on what you saw coming out of, of COP27, um, 
Is that something that, that is still achievable? And, and, and also, um, you know, there had been a recommitment uh, that the globe needs to cut greenhouse gas emissions nearly in half by 2030. Do you think that that is something that is still achievable? I think it's really worrying that we're still seeing investment in fossil fuels with these massively ambitious targets. The amount that we have to cut CO2 by, I don't think, given current progress and, and, and climate change that's already hit, hit you know, now, um, I don't think it's achievable if we just carry on to business as normal. Not even with the targets that we have, we're going to well miss, you know, we're going to miss that target massively. So I think we need investment in technologies that are not just carbon zero, but carbon negative. You know, we need to be really proactive about that. And that's a huge step forward um, over and above what's already been promised. So, you know, I, I just just an acceleration in terms of, of the targets that we have is not enough. So, you know, I think this brings together the power of, of reports like the IPCC, where, you know, the, the scientific community come together and present the evidence that underpins those decisions. But I think we're beyond now thinking in terms of just economic terms. I think if we think about climate change just economically, um, and, and keep pushing the can down the road on economic decisions. And, and as you say, with these um, politicians mm -hmm. who are coming on board, who are not on board with the, the, the urgency and mm -hmm. the seriousness, it's easy to, in the Europe, it's very easy to ignore these impacts when mm -hmm. you know, we don't particularly see much flooding or we don't see the extremes in the way that, that mm. other nations are seeing them. It's easy to deny, I think, mm. um, where, but these impacts are going to hit us and through things like mm -hmm. more difficulty in, in terms of our agriculture and costs and imports and exports and, and also human migration is, mm. is you know, we're going to see rise. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's we're in very serious, right. uh, a very serious situation. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, uh, Chiara Martinelli, Abdi Ainte, and Sharon George. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Osama Al-Luni, Aiseba Mirzaeva, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Hasib Hashimi. The program was edited by Alexander Kurler, Linda Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, Al Jazeera's original docudrama series. In season five, we meet one of the greatest goalkeepers in football, Lev Yashin. Nicknamed the Black Spider for his flexibility and acrobatic skills, the Soviet Union's goalkeeper refused to stay between the posts. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts.